Well, thank you, Jack and Jonathan, for leading us uh, so well through our service this morning, so helpfully focusing our mind on our God. Uh, And it is God uh, who we're coming to think of this morning. I know that's not unusual for us as we gather uh, in a church service. Obviously, we are always focusing our attention uh, on God. But this morning, we're continuing on in our series as we're trying to examine these key teachings of Scripture uh, where we see the, 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 the crucial elements of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we're basing ourselves in God's word and looking at what is he teaching us in our heads about what it means to believe and what we are to believe. And then we're trying to take it way beyond an intellectual exercise. Because as we saw in week one of this series, to merely listen to the word is not true, genuine, life-giving faith. True, genuine, life-giving faith is when we listen to the word and do what it says, James 1.22. And so we're trying to see how we, how we can be sure of what we know to be true, absolutely, grounded in God's word. But then allowing that truth to captivate our hearts, to stir our emotions, which then drives us and determines our actions. So we're thinking of our head, our heart, and our hands. And as I mentioned last week, my prayer is that this series is helpful for every single one of us. We're at whatever stage of that faith journey we may be on. And so for those of us who are Christians, my, my prayer is that we'll be strengthened in our understanding of what it is that we do believe as Christians and therefore emboldened to, to show and to share these great truths in, in our daily lives. And, and for those who, who don't yet believe, that my prayer is that these weeks will, will clarify what it means to be a Christian, why Christians believe what they believe and what difference it makes in their daily lives. Uh, and that would draw, God would draw you to himself as we open these things up. Um, and as you know, we're, we're framing this um, and, and kind of setting our course through this series by looking at the church doctrinal statement, uh, these 10 key statements of what it is we believe. Uh, last week, we thought about scripture, the Bible. If you were here last week and didn't manage to pick up one of our, um, the sheets from Psalm 119, they're on the table at the front. Please do pick one up on your way out and, and have some time enjoying God's word later this week. Today we're turning our attention, as Jack has led us to think of, to God. Who is God? What is he like? Uh, Why does belief in him matter? Uh, And the the topic of God is a huge one. Uh, And so we're going to focus it slightly this week. And here's what the doctrinal statement says. We believe one God in three persons, as we've just been singing. The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, Sovereign and active in creation, providence, and redemption. One God in three persons, the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's going to be our focus this morning. Um, We'll devote next week, Michael's going to help unpack uh, the the person and work of Jesus Christ. The week after, we'll think about the Holy Spirit. But for this morning, we've got the whole Trinity in view. What does the Bible teach about the Trinity? Trinity. How should we then feel about that teaching and how should we live in the light of that teaching? Our head, our heart, our hands. Um, Now, obviously this morning, we're not going to delve into all that the Bible has to say or all of the questions even that some of us may have about the Trinity. Um, But I wonder what comes to mind when you think of the Trinity. Um, I know there are different analogies or or images that some of us have to try to help us comprehend the Trinity. Um, Maybe you've seen that illustration. I think I even have performed the illustration of the three states of water. You know, you have water, the liquid, water, the solid as ice, water, the gas as steam. It's helpful, but, but limited. 
Or maybe you think of three slices of a pie. Maybe a three-leaf clover. Lots of these images and analogies uh, that I'm not totally decrying, but they are all so limited. They, They don't really explain or unpack the depth and the complexity of the Trinity in and of itself. They don't do justice to that mystery. But, but rather than letting that lead to frustration, it, it should actually, the, the depth and the vastness of the Trinity should lead us to, to wonder and to awe, ultimately to praise this great God who is mysterious, who is beyond our understanding. You see, the God of the Bible, the God who we have devoted, many of us who have devoted our lives to, is so much more transcendent, more majestic than we can ever get our heads around. And that is good news. And and so can I take some of the pressure off that some of us might be feeling this morning? Um, That that sense that I just can't get my head around God. That is a good thing. We're not supposed to. In fact, I would argue if, if we can get our head around God, if we can fully understand him and his ways with our limited human, sinful, often finite mind, if we can comprehend God in his fullness, then our view of God is way too small. In fact, in doing that, we've we've made God in our image rather than appreciating that he has made us in his. And so we, in some ways, we should be confused. We should be overwhelmed. But I'm equally not saying that just because we're never going to understand the full depths of these wonderful mysteries that we should just plead ignorance. No, of course not. We should engage our minds. We, we should challenge our thinking. We should delve deeply into Scripture for this truth. Um, because these journeys of discovering more of who God is and, and what He's like, they, they do stretch our understanding. They challenge our minds. Yes, absolutely. As we've said, that's a good thing. Because as we do so, then our vision of God expands. And, and so we, our ability to stand in wonder and in awe before Him then leads us to praise Him for His complexity, His majesty. His majesty. And so our praise is fueled. Um, John Piper helpfully noted, uh, this is a, a quote that I read this week, no matter how far you climb into infinity, the distance above you remains endless. No matter how far you climb into infinity, the distance above you remains endless. In some ways, that's the same as we consider God. We are trying to delve into the depths that we don't even know where those depths end. And it very much reminds me and faces on Isaiah 55, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And, and we should praise him for this truth. Thank goodness his ways are not mine. Thank goodness his thoughts are way above mine. See, we should be thankful for this because it reminds us of his majesty, his power, his loftiness, his, in some ways, his otherness, his holiness. And yet at the same time, we're drawn to praise because this big, majestic other God, holy God, welcomes us into relationship. He, he makes himself knowable. He's, he's revealed himself to us in his word. This is a wonderful God that we worship who is so big and vast, yet at the same time so personal and intimate and knowable. 
And so we're going to think about the Trinity this morning. We're going to see what God's word says about the reality of this majestic truth. And as we do, I, I just ask you to allow your heart to open. And whatever has captivated your head this morning, your heart even this morning, uh, try to set that aside and let's see and expose ourselves to God's word uh, and allow him to speak to us as we recognize his, his utter gloriousness. Uh, and we're going to look at, at quite a number of different passages again this morning. Uh, we're vaguely going to divide our time into two. Uh, we're going to lay out some of the evidence of the Trinity as we see described in Scripture. And then we're going to see what the experience of the Trinity at work means in Scripture and therefore means for us. So we'll think of the evidence of the Trinity and the experience of the Trinity. Uh, and so we'll try to open our minds, open our heads to the truth of God's word. And we'll seek to understand how that captivates, that truth captivates our hearts and ultimately determines our actions in our hands. And so in thinking of the, the evidence of the Trinity in Scripture, uh, my, my goal here is, is not, to, not to lay out every verse where the Trinity is mentioned. It, it's not to do an in-depth study of each of these passages. It is merely to, to highlight some of the many times in God's Word where we see the Trinity being spoken of or the Trinity in action. And as I say, well, this is not some kind of exhaustive list. Uh, equally, these texts are not going to appear on the screen. Um, and so the, the, the references are there. Feel free to drop, jot them down, look them up with me as we go through, or take a note of them and look at them later. But let's just walk through these passages. As I said, I'm not going to pass comment on many of them, but if you can see the number of tabs on my Bible, we're going to be here for a little bit. Uh, and so let's enjoy God's word together as we look at what his word teaches us about where we see the evidence of the Trinity at play. So firstly, Genesis 1.26, I'm thinking of in the creation narrative, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Did you notice the plural language there when talking of God? God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God doesn't say, let me make mankind in my image. No, it's let us make mankind in our image. It's, it's, it's God speaking as the Trinity within himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communing together in creation. Secondly, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. This is the, the beginning of a wonderful prayer. Uh, and we'll just read the one verse in, in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, God is one. That might seem like a strange verse to, to quote at this stage, but we need to recognize that as we explore the three persons of the Trinity, we must never treat them as three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no, equally divine, equally God, fully God, but they are one God. One God, three persons, and our minds start to get blown. Matthew chapter 3, uh, skipping forward into the New Testament, we see um, we're jumping into Jesus' baptism, and he just comes out of the water. And verse 16, as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The three persons of the Trinity acting together, interacting together. Jesus comes up out of the water, sees the spirit descending. A voice from heaven, the father saying, this is my son, Jesus, the son of God. Father, son, Holy Spirit at play all at once. Skipping forward to Matthew 28. 
where Jesus is giving his final commission to his disciples before he ascends back to heaven after dying and rising and appearing to many. In verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, Then all of authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus tells his followers then and therefore us now to go make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name for the three persons. Jesus doesn't say baptize in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, the name, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Skipping more into John chapter 1. Just going to read the first two verses. We, we saw these last week, actually, but let's look at them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We know from throughout John's Gospel that Jesus is the Word. And so John is saying here, right at the beginning of, of his Gospel, Jesus was, was the Word, he was with God, and he was God. Jesus was at one and the same time with God and is God. Fully divine, incredible uh, to think. I want to read a slightly lengthier passage from John 14. Um, Jonathan mentioned the office bearers are meeting tonight for our monthly Bible study, and we've been working our way through these uh, chapters in John's Gospel where they're spending time together in the upper room before Jesus goes to be crucified. And there's a a wonderful interaction here as Jesus explains what will happen when he leaves the earth. And, And it's an insight into the Trinity. Uh, And so let me read verses 16 to to 27. This is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So, So Jesus will go, ask the Father to send the Spirit, the Trinity again at play. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Isn't that amazing? The Father will love them. I will love them, Jesus said. We will come and make our home with them. And we could keep on reading. Please do if you get the time and make the time. Let's skip forward to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. The disciples have been meeting in the upper room. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them. They've been compelled out into the streets of Jerusalem. Peter starts to tell those who are gathered the good news of the Messiah, Jesus, who came. And starting in verse 32, God has, this is Peter speaking to the crowd, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out, uh, and has, sorry, and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Peter explaining that Jesus has has just fulfilled what he promised in in John chapter 14, that he went to the Father, the Father sent the Spirit, the Spirit has been poured out on the believers who gathered in the room, and so they're now, uh, the visible demonstration of that Spirit is now um, there for all to see. 
And then at the end, when the people want to repent and want to, they claim, brothers, what shall we do in verse 37? Peter replied in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just two more. Romans 8. Um, We'll read verse 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, remember, Peter has just said that when you believe, when you repent um, and come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Paul picks this up in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. See that fatherly language, the God, the Father sent the Spirit. We've received adoption through the work of Jesus. And the last one that we'll look at, Colossians 1. Look at verse 15. And then we'll look at verse 19. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So there we have Jesus, the Son, is the image, the visible, physical image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in verse 19, still speaking of Jesus, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. Jesus was fully divine. Now I know that that's mind-blowing. I know that that's a whistle-stop tour, but the Bible, it's clear, is full of this teaching of the triune God. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Equally God, equally eternal, equally important, equally significant. And I know it's mind-blowing. I know it's complex. I'm not in any way denying that. But I also believe, as we said at the start, the more we dig in to God's word in, on this teaching, the more our, our minds are not only <laughs> confused but expanded. See the depth and complexity and the riches of God. Our God, who is eternal, therefore way outside time and space, yet entered time and space, reveals himself to us, showed and, and came as Jesus in order to save, as we'll come on to see in a few minutes. And so, yes, our minds might be scratched, but let also your hearts be lifted in awe and in wonder at the majesty of our God. So there's plenty of evidence within God's word for the Trinity. That's not in doubt. Take those references home. Look at them. Please enjoy them uh, and even come back to me with more. That would be wonderful. But the question we need then to ask is what difference does this truth make? As we're trying to think of through this series, how does the truth of the Trinity captivate our heart and determine our actions? And to help us with that, we're going to look back over some of those passages and examine some of the experiences of the Trinity at work. In other words, what does our God do? How does he act? And therefore, how do we respond to that? Just going to pick up three things here. And we're going to start right back at the beginning. In Genesis 1.26, we read that verse together where God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created human beings in the image of himself. And this is a huge topic. We'll come back to it in a few weeks when we look at humanity as a topic in and of itself. But for now, this morning, I just want to rest in this wonderful reality that human beings are made in the image of God. You and I In fact, every person on the planet made in the image of God. As his creation, we we carry something of his fingerprint. 
And yes, we know from the rest of Scripture that that image is marred and distorted by sin. I, I totally appreciate that, of course. But the reality that underneath that marring and distortion is the image of God in every single person that we rub shoulders with. And in, in, that, in that light, we know then if every human being made in the image of God therefore has intrinsic value and dignity and worth. And so how we think about and feel about ourselves, we are image bearers of God. How we think about other people, they are carrying the image of God. As we thought about in life groups on Wednesday evening, this truth that, that every person carries the image of God is made in his image. It means that Christians have no right to ever show favoritism or partiality, not in any kind of man-made social division or convention anyway. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter where you, what your postcode is. It doesn't matter what political party you vote for. No, you, you are made in the image of God. Therefore, you are precious in his sight, and so you should be precious in that. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with everyone. I understand all of that. But at the depths, our baseline should be you, you're an image bearer of, of the Trinitarian God. And part of what that means, it means lots, but part of what that means is, is that the, the reality that, that we are created for relationship. That God exists in Trinity, three persons in relationship. And so we as as bearing his image as marred and, and distorted by sin as it might be. We, we are hardwired to connect. And the, the Trinity is the most pure and whole demonstration of perfect relationship. And, and as those who, who are made in his image, we have an inbuilt longing for that same kind of connection. Now, the story of, Bible, of the Bible shows us that we can only find that genuine love and perfect acceptance in God himself. That's why he created the world. That's why he, he brought in his salvation plan when sin entered it, so that that relationship with him could be restored, so that the penalty of sin could be dealt with, so that his holy wrath against sin could be fully, fully paid for, so that his perfect love could be displayed. That's what his salvation plan shows, and all of that is only possible through Jesus Christ. So again, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to be made for relationship. And until we find that relationship with our God, then we'll search for that kind of fulfillment in places that, isn't, that aren't designed to give it to us. It's only when we, when we come to the embrace of our loving, heavenly, Trinitarian Father God that we will know that lasting joy and peace and love. And that is evidence of the Trinity at work. So seeing the Trinity and understanding the Trinity opens up our understanding to our need for connection and relationship and how actually that need is only fully and perfectly met in relationship with God himself. And so we see evidence of the Trinity at work in creation. Secondly, and again not exhaustively, we see evidence of the Trinity at work in the incarnation. We read a, a verse from John chapter 1 earlier. I want to skip forward to John, four, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14. Um, where we see that God became flesh. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the Word, Jesus, God's Son, sent from the Father to make His dwelling among us in the creation that He created. 
And we see then in Matthew 3, as we read at his baptism, uh, that Jesus is affirmed by God, if you like. This is my son, whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descended like a dove, the Trinity in action in the incarnation. But equally, we, we can't consider the incarnation, the coming of God the Son, without the reason, without recognizing the reason for that coming. We've said it already, but it is worth repeating that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice, a sacrifice in our place to pay the penalty and the punishment of sin so that we might know that relationship that we were created with God to have for now and for all eternity. We saw that in Romans 8, didn't we? How we were adopted into sonship, into, um, into his family because of the work of Jesus. We see it again in Galatians 4, 4 to 7, but we'll not read that now. But again, look that up if you have time. We see the Trinity at work. The Father sending the Son to redeem us as his children. And then for those of us who believe, we are given the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. One God, three persons, working for our salvation and all made possible through the incarnation of Christ. Now, now how should our, our hearts and our emotions be captivated by the incarnation? Why is that good news? Why is it good news for us? Well, not only does it uh, usher in our salvation, but, but the incarnation was a result of God's love. Just look at this verse from 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So for those of us who know and trust in Jesus, we are experiencing the love of God because we are invited as his children. We are children of God. Those of us who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, welcomed into his family, that is our identity. We are children of his. And we saw this, uh, for those of us who were here as we worked through First Peter, we saw lots of this teaching on our new identity as his child. We saw there that identity shapes behavior, that who we are shapes how we're to live, and so it is as children of God. As his children and dwelt by his spirit, that shapes our life. We're seeking to live that life of obedience and thankfulness to him and all that he's done. And all of that is possible because of the incarnation. Jesus coming to save sinners from their sin. And so we see wonderful, uh, the wonder of the Trinity at work in the incarnation. We've seen it in creation. And the final thing that I want to mention is how we see it at work in our salvation and our sanctification. We, we've mentioned this a little bit, but it's worth noting again. We see the Trinity at work in our salvation and sanctification. You might remember this from when we did spend some time in First Peter. But the very first two verses of First Peter uh, speak to us of how the Trinity is at work. Uh, let me read those two verses to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, we could spend months unpacking that statement. But we have been, those of us who have been saved, who are those elect exiles, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Look, this is, this is wonderful truth. It's complex, I understand that. But it's wonderful truth. 
chosen by the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And this is what I mean by salvation and sanctification, that we are chosen, we are saved, salvation, and then sanctified as being molded more into the likeness of Christ. And there's much that we could say in these verses, but I just want to to pick out three things very quickly just as we finish. How, how do these verses, how does this reality, the Trinity at work in our salvation and sanctification, how should it make us feel? How should we live in the light of it? Well, I think in these verses we see uh, that we should have great confidence, assurance, and hope. See, we have confidence because we are foreknown by the Father. Uh, he has saved us, and so he will hold us till the end. And so our salvation is, is not earned by us working our way towards him, he has chosen us. He has initiated. He has made forgiveness possible. He offers grace. And so we can have confidence in the fact that we have been saved because he has done the work. It's not on us. It's not what we have done. He has done. He has for, we are being foreknown by the Father. And so we can live our life following Jesus with confidence. Secondly, we can, we can live with assurance. Because we can see evidence of the Spirit's work within us, that sanctifying work that he does. We can see that fruit as a result of our faith and our trust and our surrender to him. And so we can, we can have assurance of salvation, again, not because of what we do, but because of the Spirit's work within us. That we're becoming more like Jesus, and that's his work in our lives and hearts. It's his Spirit transforming our hearts. And so that leads to a transformed life. And all of those things work as evidence for us that we know that Jesus is at work in our hearts. He has, he will hold us to the end. We have been foreknown by the Father. We are being sanctified by the Spirit. And finally, we can have hope because we know that we've been sprinkled by the, with the blood of Jesus. It is his sacrifice. And we know that his sacrifice is full and final and complete. It is once for all. And so yet again, it's not about us. It's not what we can do. It's about trusting in what has already been done. Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus has paid the price. He has satisfied the wrath of God for all of us who trust in him. So come to Jesus. If you haven't made that step of faith and trust in the finished and final work of Jesus on your behalf, surrender your heart to him this morning. Accept his offer of love and forgiveness and life in fullness and obedience to him for now and for all eternity. See, in the wonderful saving and sanctifying work of our triune God, we can have confidence that our salvation is not based on merit but on grace. We can have assurance because the Spirit is at work transforming us into Christ-likeness. It's not our own willpower. It's the Spirit at work. And we can have hope because we know that we're trusting in the Savior who has fully and finally paid the debt, securing our eternal future with him. And of course we trust. Of course we surrender. We lay down our life. We obey. We're not passive in it, but we're certainly not earning our way to him. We can have confidence, assurance, and hope because of what he has done on our behalf and the life he's called us to live. And so we, we see the experience of the Trinity in these wonderful ways in creation, in the incarnation, and in our sanct- salvation and sanctification. And, and these may sound like big words. I know they describe deep and complex truths. But don't allow your heart to be sidetracked by the complexity. 
rather allow your heart to be opened to worship, to gaze at, in wonder at this deep and complex God who is greater than we can ever imagine, who is, whose thoughts are way beyond our thoughts. Yet he makes himself knowable. He's the God who wants to welcome you into relationship and ever-deepening relationship with you. And so we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a truth that sometimes leads us to question, leads us to wonder, leads us to scratch our head. But it is a wonderful truth that shows us the depth and complexity and majesty of our God and welcomes us to delve deep into him, to allow him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be at work evermore in our lives. And so after all of those words, let's take a moment of quiet. And then we'll pray and we'll come to the table. Father, we thank you for your vastness. We thank you for the complexity that we will never know and plumb the depths to come to full understanding of who you are. Yet we praise you that you have made yourself known. You have revealed truth to us. And so, Father, we, we thank you. And Lord, we recognize that that sometimes we do uh, get confused and sidetracked. And, and God, I pray that you would help us to navigate that road well, where we want to delve deeply into you and into your word. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, you would draw our hearts to praise and worship you. Father, we thank you for, for those of us who know you and who, who, have, who you have saved. Father, thank you that you foreknown us. That you are sanctifying us by your spirit. We long to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And so would you help us? Help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you in our heads. Help our hearts to be captivated more and more by you and by who you are and what you're doing in our lives and in your world. And Lord, may our lives then demonstrate that through our hands as we seek to make you known and draw others into your wonderful loving embrace. And Father, we pray that these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be pleasing in your sight. So God, I... 
out of everything that's been said this morning, would you plant your seed in our hearts? Would you do your work, Father? If there's been anything I've said that's been unhelpful or not of you, Father, would you strip it away? May your words stand for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, for the joy of life in you, we pray.